And let's go ahead and let's pray before we open the Word together. Father, even as we prayed in song, so we pray with mere words now, though it is the song of our hearts, that You would show us Christ. Show us Christ, we pray. We're thankful that Your Word is a living Word. If there's anything dead in this room, it is our hearts, it is our souls, it is our minds. And so where we are dead, would You bring life? Where there is languishing of life, would You bring more life? May we see Christ as we hear the Word read and as we hear it preached today. We feel like we are caught up into the heavens to gaze upon you in all of your beauty and all of your glory. And have said, we know that we have seen Christ this day. We pray this in the strong and able name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil? Has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. 
And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We began over these last two weeks to make a subtle march to the foot of Mount Calvary. And as we'll see in our text today and see next week, we are literally steps away from the foot of Mount Calvary where Christ Jesus will be crucified upon the cross. What I want to do this morning is look at this passage under three headings. The first is the innocent Lamb of God. The second is the guilt of sinners. And the third is the substitution of the Lamb for sinners. So, first, the innocent Lamb of God. Second, the guilt of sinners. And then third, the substitution of the Lamb for sinners. First, the innocent Lamb of God. You'll remember that the priests and the elders of Israel, that they had brought charges against Jesus in front of Caiaphas and Annas and the council, the Sanhedrin. And the charge that they had brought against him was the charge of blasphemy, that he had blasphemed the name of God. Now that mattered before the Sanhedrin, but that kind of charge wouldn't matter before the secular authority, before Pilate and and the Romans. And so when they bring Jesus before Pilate the governor, they don't issue the charge of blasphemy because Pilate could care less about blasphemy. Rather, they bring the charge that Luke says in his gospel that Jesus is an insurrectionist. This is what Luke says in chapter 23 of that gospel. He says that they charged Jesus with misleading the nation, forbidding others to give tribute to Caesar, and calling himself the Christ, a king. Now for Pilate, for the Romans, this is a threat. Here is one that is claiming to be king and leading an insurrection as king. And if there was anything that the Romans feared, it was these pesky Jews were constantly wanting to throw off the Roman authority, and they could not abide by anybody leading an insurrection. They bring these accusations against Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of insurrection or sedition, And yet, as the text says, Jesus remains silent, just as we saw before. And they bring the charges against him before Annas and Caiaphas. He just remains silent. It is bringing home, again, that prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesied like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But then Jesus opens his mouth, doesn't he? When Pilate asks the question. Pilate asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers the exact same way that he did before Caiaphas, when Caiaphas had asked the question, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
It's actually the third time that he's answered this way. He also answers this way when he's at the table, the Passover table with Jews, when he's getting ready to institute the Lord's table, and he's sitting there and he tells them that some of them are going to betray him, and there is one in particular that is going to betray him. And Judas says, Is it I, Lord? And Jesus says, You have said so. He says the same thing to Caiaphas, and now he says the same thing to Pilate when Pilate asks, Are you the Christ, the King of the Jews? You have said so. Why does he answer this way? Because Judas knew, and Caiaphas knew, and Pilate knew. But uh, much like when he answered Caiaphas, so it is here with Pilate that Pilate is asking, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus can't answer no because he is. He is the king of the Jews. But he also can't answer yes because if he answers yes, then he's fitting within their category of what it looks like to be king of the Jews. He is no insurrectionist. He is not practicing sedition. And so he doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no, he just says, you have said so. The testimony regarding Jesus is consistent throughout this passage and throughout the Gospels. In verse 19, you see that Pilate's wife sends, Judas, or sends Pilate a message that she had a dream the night before. And she says about that dream, she says, have nothing to do with, quote, this righteous man. Pilate, after asking the crowd a second time, who do they want to release, hoping that the crowd will change its mind and, and that they will want to have Barabbas released. After he asks them, do you want me to release Barabbas or do you want me to release Jesus who is the Christ? And they yell Barabbas. What does he say in response? He says in verse 23, why? What evil has he done? Pilate goes so far in verse 24 that when they cry, let him be crucified a second time, that he goes and he washes his hands like a Jew as a kind of symbol to them that I will not be guilty for this innocent man's blood. If we looked before this passage, as we saw last week in chapter 27, verse 4, Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. In fact, isn't it interesting that when the chief priests and these religious leaders and these elders are looking for false testimonies against Jesus and they're conducting this trial in the Sanhedrin, that they never called Judas as a witness. This one that they had paid to be a betrayer, if anyone knew anything about Jesus, it was Judas. He walked with him for three years. He listened to him. He saw him. If he had a charge to bring, he would have been called, but they didn't call him. Why? Because he had nothing against this man. He's innocent. If we go beyond in the hours following this passage, we find in Luke 23 that those two thieves that were on the cross on either side of Jesus, that the one thief says to the other thief, this man has done nothing wrong, speaking of Jesus. When the centurion in that same Luke chapter 23 is standing at the foot of the cross and he is looking up at Jesus the Christ laid on that cross, what does he say? 
He says, certainly this man was innocent. The testimony is consistent. Every single person acknowledges the innocence of Christ. This is a man without sin. He is a lamb without blemish. As Peter says, we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is an innocent man. But second, let us see the guilt of sinners in this text. There are guilty sinners in this text. There are a number in this passage... First, you have Pilate, who is guilty. He will seek to wash his hands from the guilt. He will say, as he bows to the dictates of this crowd, that he is not guilty for this man's blood, but mere washing of water never cleanses one from the guilt of sin. This is a man who knew what was right, and yet his fear of man was greater than his fear of God. His conscience was pricked. He knows that there's no evil in this man. His wife even testifies that he is a righteous man. His conscience is pricked. He goes back to the Jews a second time to try and plead with them again. Let's release Jesus, not Barabbas. And yet he caves. He caves because he fears man more than he fears God. There's no courage in this man. There's no conviction in this man. There is a constant temptation for you and I to fear man and turn a deaf ear to what we know to be right. We, we fear the crowd. We fear their yells. We turn a deaf ear to the Word of God as it's rattling around our brains or in our hearts or as we hear it read or as we hear it preached because that voice of the crowd, it is so incredibly loud. It's especially a warning, I think, for college students and for high school students and junior high students. Oh, that crowd is so loud in your world, so loud. And you, you know this to be right, but that crowd yells. You know, Pilate was Maybe fearful of their anger. He was fearful of being rejected by them, fearful of the physical threat, and so he'll deny his conscience. Isn't this fascinating? If I was to ask you, tell me about the life of Pilate. Everything that he did. Tell me something that he did. You can't name anything but this. This man was so fearful of the crowd. And now this is the only thing that he's remembered for. We confessed it this morning from the very first century of the church. We confess that Pontius Pilate delivered him over. He will go to hell with that on him. Because the crowd was more important in the moment. Well, the crowds disappear. They're fading. He is not. But the temptation isn't just for students. It is for all of us. 
That voice is so loud, whether it's a crowd in our workplace or whether it's a crowd in our society or whether it's a crowd in our political camp or whether it's a crowd in our friends or whether it's a crowd in our church or even in our family. J.C. Ryle once said this, he said, The praise of man is a poor, feeble, uncertain thing. It is here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Let us strive to please God, and then we may care little who else is pleased. Let us fear God, and then there is none else of whom we need to be afraid. Remember when I came home my freshman year from college, I had just been converted to Christ. I came home that first Christmas break, and I was telling Matt Umkus, our pastoral intern this week, this story, and that's why it's going through my head. But I was sitting at a lunch table with some of my family members who I desperately love and who have always desperately loved me. And I was sitting there with them, and one of them turned to me. And they said to me, we don't like this new Jason. We want the old Jason back. And I mean, that, when that was said to me, it just was like, ah, oh, pierced all the way through. And that voice was loud. I love my family. What the old Jason back. I look back on that moment. In the moment, I thought that was the worst thing anybody has ever said to me. I look back now, and I think that is the best thing anybody has ever said to me. They saw a change. I was a different man. I was born again. It would be so easy to listen to that voice, family that desperately loves you, has cared for you all of these years, and says, you know what, we don't like this, we prefer this, and to listen to that voice and turn back, but you can't. No, it's His voice that lasts. It's that voice we listen to. It's so loud, though, that voice of the crowd. And Pilate gives in. Fear of man, not fear of God. Second, we're also told about other guilty sinners, the prisoner Barabbas. The SV translates it that he was a notorious prisoner. Mark will tell us that he was a rebel who had committed murder in an insurrection. And as we said, insurrection was the great threat to the Roman governors and through the Roman establishment. And so this is something they treated very heavy-handedly, and they recognized that he was a notable prisoner. He had committed a great crime against Rome. And so, because he had committed that great crime, he was to be crucified. When you and I think about Mount Calvary, we think about those three crosses, and those three crosses were prepared, and the question becomes is, why were those three crosses prepared? And the reason is this. One of those was prepared for Barabbas. We often talk about these other two that were on the other sides of Jesus, the two robbers, that's the word that Matthew uses, but... But that word robber, it has the idea of someone that commits a violence in robbing or thieving. That would have no problem doing physical harm to someone. And no doubt these robbers that are on either side of Jesus have committed violent crimes. 
But even that wasn't enough in Roman law for them to crucify somebody. Crucifixion was kept for the absolute worst of offenders, for people who were like insurrectionists. And so I think it's very likely, if not almost guaranteed, that these two robbers that are crucified on each side of Jesus were also participants in this insurrection with Barabbas, and all three of them are to be crucified together. That middle cross was meant for Barabbas. He's guilty. He's guilty. It's not just Pilate. It's not just Barabbas. We see the guilt of the chief priests and the elders in the text too. They have no real charge against Jesus. Matthew even tells us that they're operating out of envy, and yet here they go and they stir up the crowd to demand the blood of this innocent man and to free this man who is guilty as an insurrectionist and has killed somebody. The chief priests and the elders are guilty. But what Matthew wants you and I especially to see is the fourth group. And these are the people that he mentions with just one word, verse 25, Matthew says, and all the people answered. That is, all people are guilty. So what does that mean, all? Is it all, all the Jews that are before Pilate, in that very moment, that are crying out, crucify him, crucify him? Or is the all, all the Jewish people, the entire nation of Israel? And we would have to answer, well, it's both of those. It is all those that are before Pilate and that are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. It's also true in some sense, that is for all the nation of Israel, in some sense, this is why in AD 70, you have the destruction of Jerusalem in some manner. But that all doesn't just include them. It includes Pontius Pilate, though he washes his hands, he's guilty. It includes Caiaphas and Annas, though they are high priests. It includes them, they are guilty. It includes the Roman soldiers who will put him to death, they are guilty. But here's what we must say if we're thinking through the New Testament ethic and we're looking through the lens of the New Testament Scriptures. The all includes every single sinner. You. Me. In a very real sense, every single human who has ever lived is guilty of the death of Christ. Except I wasn't there. I didn't scream out, crucify Him. Our sin seeks to cast him off of his throne. It's a very affront to the glory of God. It's our voice that is yelling out with theirs, and he is condemned by our sin. As one commentator said, that there is a universal guilt in the death of Christ, a universal guilt. You have to understand that. If you can read a passage like this and you don't see yourself in that crowd yelling, crucify him, then you don't understand. But once you begin to understand that, then everything opens up for you. Everything. 
that we are guilty, there's also a redemption that is offered to all as well. Peter in Acts 3, he will be walking up, going to the temple with John, and they will be met by that lame man who is a beggar. Wonderful, one of the best little stories, I think, in the Bible. And he is begging and asking, and you will remember that he says, we neither have silver nor gold to give to you, but what we have we will give to you. And so he heals him, you'll remember, and, and he gives life to the limbs of this man who has been lame all of his life. It's outside the temple where all of these Jews are, these Jews that have just previously, these same people, at least by ethnicity, if not even by person, that have screamed out before, crucify him, crucify him. Peter will then preach to them when they come to him and say, what in the world, how did this happen, that this man who was lame now walks? And this is what he says to them. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And then he says this, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. That is, this man that was lame, that had no energy in the limbs of his body from his very birth, he now can walk. He is actually leaping. Why? Because the same Jesus that you delivered over, the same Jesus that you crucified, the same Jesus was raised from the grave by the Father, and it is by His name that we gave strength to this man's limbs. That Jesus. But then listen what he says to them. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You delivered him over. But this was according to the plan of God. And now he has a charge for them. And it is this. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Turn back and repent that your sins might be blotted out. Offers made. You're guilty. You are so guilty. We're all guilty. And the offer of redemption is made to all. This leads to our third and final point. The substitution of the Lamb for sinners. Matthew closes our passage with this, he wants us to focus upon this. He says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him 
to be crucified. Jesus, this lamb without blemish, he is scourged. They, Romans would take a whip and it would have leather tassels on the end. And on those leather tassels, they would put in bones and pieces of metal. And then they would use that to flay open the back of a man or a woman. They would do it to the point that it would reveal bone and that it would reveal entrails. And they used this especially for people that were getting ready to go to the cross because they wanted to make them weak before they got to the cross. So here he is, scourged, flogged, and condemned. Whereas Barabbas, Matthew says, this guilty sinner, this insurrectionist, this murderer is set free. The word that Matthew uses here, delivered, It's the same word that we just saw Peter use in Acts chapter 3, you delivered over. It's the same word here. It's the same word that every single one of the four gospel writers will use. They will speak of delivered over. He released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Remember, this is all in the context of the Passover. The Passover is occurring. And at the Passover, on that Day of Atonement, which every single Jew would have known by heart the entire ritual because they lived it year in and year out, that on that day, the high priest, he would go into before the temple and he would, at the altar there, he would make a sacrifice of a lamb for the sins of the people. And even as he did that, he would go to this goat and he would lay his hands on this goat that eventually adopted the name of scapegoat and he would confess and prayer over that goat all the guilt of the sins of the people. And then that goat would be led out of the city and would be released into the wilderness, into the darkness, and so there it would carry the guilt of the people away. Remember, thinking about that and thinking what's happening there, you have both sides of the covenant. You have the side of blessing and you have the side of cursing. You have the great blessing of all of this life, the great blessing of the covenant that God makes with His people is that He would be with us. That's the constant refrain throughout the Scriptures. The greatest blessing that you and I can enjoy is when we are with the people of God in the presence of God. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon His beauty. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Blessing is found in the presence of God with His people. That is blessing. So what's cursing? The opposite. That's where you're cast out. That's where you're led out into the wilderness, away from God and away from His people. And so the scapegoat is to carry that curse as he goes out into the wilderness and he is set free so that the people, the people can now come before God in His holy presence as a people and dwell with Him in worship. And experience blessing. Christ Jesus and Barnabas 
put before our eyes the fulfillment of the Passover story. Do you see it? Barabbas, a thief, that murderer, that insurrectionist, that sinner, he goes free. Where the spotless Lamb of God is led outside of the city into the darkness, into the wilderness to suffer the guilt of the sin. And Barabbas is set free. Matthew says that Jesus was delivered over. Delivered over by whom? Surely Matthew means here that he was delivered over by Pontius Pilate. We could go back before that and we could see how Judas, betraying him, delivered him over. We could see how Caiaphas and Annas, by rendering judgment, delivered him over. We could see how the chief priests and the elders delivered him over. We could see how the Roman soldiers delivered him over. But ultimately, he is only delivered over because God ultimately delivered him over. Paul picks up this language in Romans 8, 32 through 33, the same word, delivered. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up, delivered Him up, same word. For us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God ultimately gave Him up. It's God that delivers Him over. He's delivered over into darkness so that we might enjoy the light. He received death so that we might have life. He receives cursing so we might know blessing. Reformed theologian Karl Barth, once commenting, he said that the most important word in the whole New Testament is the little Greek word huper. Huper. The word just means in behalf of. In behalf of. Most important word in all of the scriptures, in behalf of. Christ died in behalf of sinners. That's what he says. Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me, even as I know the Father and the Father knows me, and I lay my life down for the sheep. He said in Mark that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ died in behalf of sinners. R.C. Sproul Late R.C. Sproul was told a story where once he was speaking at a conference and it was a public event and he was talking about this, about the substitutionary atoning death of Christ upon the cross. And in the midst of giving this lecture, he had someone stand up in the middle of that lecture and yell out at the top of his lungs, that's primitive and obscene. And Sproul, as only Sproul could do, uh, with his quick mind immediately responded to the man who had 
just yelled out that that is primitive and obscene. And he said, those are the two best words I have ever heard to describe the cross. It's primitive. What could be more primitive? As Sproul said, it is so simple that even the most uneducated, the most simple-minded person can understand it. God provides a way of redemption for us that is not limited to an intellectual elite, but is so crass, so crude that the primitive person can comprehend it, and at the same time so sublime that it brings consternation to the most brilliant of theologians. They can study it for the rest of their lives and never get to the bottom of it. But what Sproul especially loved, he said, was the second term. The man called it obscene. Is the cross obscene? Oh my, yes, it is obscene. It is incredibly obscene. It is the most obscene event in human history. As Sproul said, Christ became an obscenity for us. When he laid bare on that cross as the scapegoat for his people, as the lamb without blemish that now is heaped upon him all the sins of his people, he became an obscenity for us. He became the obscenity of the murderer, the obscenity of the thief, the obscenity of the adulterer, the obscenity of the pornography user, the obscenity of the blasphemer, the obscenity of the profaner, the obscenity of the idolater, the obscenity of the liar. He became an obscenity for us. It was all focused on that one man in that one moment. And the guilty sinner was set free. Set free. You see, you're not just supposed to see yourself in the crowd that's yelling, crucify him, crucify him. If you don't see yourself as Barabbas, then you don't understand. You're to see yourself as Barabbas having been set free if your faith is in Christ. On the cross, that lamb without blemish, sinless, perfect, innocent, and glorious lamb became the most filthy person in the history of the world. As all the sin of those he came to save was imputed to his person, because God delivered him over. I wonder, when you see this with your mind's eye, when you look with the eyes of your heart, as Paul will say, do you find that your soul is just tickled with delight at the love of God? If you hear this and it just kind of, ha, I've heard that before. 
oh, you don't understand? Does it tickle your soul with delight? The Father loves you this much. Does it tickle your soul with delight that the Son loves you so much that He who was without blemish, without sin, who was innocent, was willing to be born on that tree to receive all that guilt? What love? Do you see the Father's love for you in sending the Son into this world? Delivering him up for sinners who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. There's that wonderful passage in Genesis chapter 22 where Abram with, with Lot is commanded by God to go up Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son. And the text says, sacrifice your son, your only son. Abraham. You remember when they're on their way up the mountain. Isaac is no dummy. He says, ah, Father, here's the wood. There's the altar. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, with a kind of prescience, says, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. But remember, he they stack up the wood on the altar that they have built, and then Abraham lays his son, his only son, on that altar. And as he lays him there and binds him to the altar, he then picks up his knife, and you'll remember his knife is over his head, and he is ready to bring it down. And you remember what happens. The angel appears and stops him. And what does he say to him? Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear God. In essence, now I know that you love God. This is love that is so great that you're willing to sacrifice your own son. Now I know that you love God. It's what the cross is supposed to do for you and I. It's supposed to flip it. So that you and I look at the cross with our mind's eye and we say, that's His only begotten Son. And He sacrificed Him for us. He sacrificed Him for me. And I'm to know oh, what great love this Father has for me. great love He has for me. We're sinners who struggle to comprehend all this. We doubt it. We go through dark providences and we think, ah, I'm not exactly sure God is for me. Man, life has been hard. I'm lonely. People have been incredibly harsh with me. I have suffered greatly. I'm not sure God loves me. He sacrifices His only begotten Son.
Ultimately, he delivered him up. As Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He delivered him up, this lamb without spot or blemish. And that lamb is so worthy, so incredibly worthy. And you are declared worthy because of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the unbelievable goodness of the gospel. And a spotless Lamb of God, the very God-man, will be delivered up for sinners such as us. And no matter where we are at today, whether we are liars, adulterers, murderers, whether we are abusers, whether we are drunkards or gluttons, whether we are filled with sloth or pride or hatred or anger, that here is a Savior for sinners. Oh, would you grant faith where there is not? Would you grant comfort where there is not? Would you grant encouragement where there is not? Truly, you have given us all things in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.